Yeah, I think this whole thing is about not funny digression and we should just like move on. I mean, I wasn't listening, so that's who's me. That's the pre-episode thing, isn't it? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have letters of comment this week from two old suspects, no, familiar suspects, no, old familiars, people. And uh, we also have one from a new suspect. I, I believe that also our letters of comment are going to be incorporated into also Corrections Corner. Thank you to our commenters for pointing out several things we got wrong in the last podcast. Um, yes, so we'll start with um, uh, we'll start with Chris Garcia, who points out that Alison was wrong about Monument Valley, and it is in fact fantastic. So thank you for that no, important no, 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 fact no. check, Chris. <laughs> okay, did you say why? Should I have read this? Uh, he says he says he says my son John Paul is exceptionally good at it, much better at it than using the potty. So Alison, I think we can safely declare that it's a great game. Well, I mean, I didn't realise that being better at it than using the potty was the criterion, because that changes everything. I think I'd be quite bad at using the potty, because I imagine most of them are designed for asses that are smaller than mine. This is a disturbing digression. So, he also says that I am exactly right about Gloomhaven, so this is my favourite letter of comment um actually it's not uh it and and i got in trouble on a discord for saying something else was my favorite letter of comment so obviously my favorite letter of comment is always claire's i i would like to call out from uh chris's letter that he says gloomhaven is completely average in a fairly average way which is just <laughs> my favorite phrase this week um he also pointed out that we forgot completely to mention the last of us part two as a candidate for best games hugo this is probably because i'm currently stuck somewhere in the middle of the last of us part one with not enough ammo and i've given up so he also says that he doesn't think animal crossings new horizons will win he's wrong but who knows whether we'll even have a hugo ceremony at any rate <laughs> spoilers for later spoilers for later um listener Ange posted on her twitter because and we will link to this in the show notes she got a notification from her podcast app in which it said octothorpe 22 i sometimes bum Ange," and she had questions and um we would like to apologize to Ange uh for the title of the last episode and the unfortunate way it was cut off by her podca- podcast app of choice is that really something we need to apologize for um well apologizing for it lets us put it in in a way that isn't just her bum yeah bum bums <laughs> which, are funny which, bum okay yeah fair enough name of the name of the podcast <laughs> possibly okay and then we have our letters of comment from um mark and claire from croydon Mark says, it's probably a little late in the season to express the sentiment in this way, but oh no, we won't uh, be checking the Hugos this year, that is. Um, so um, yes, we were incorrect. Uh, Mark and Claire have done it in previous years, but are not doing it for 2021, and therefore presumably haven't been able to resign. But again, spoilers for later. And Mark also says that he has joined Eastcom as a virtual 
member, but that is a lot because he always goes to EasterCon and that trumps his sense of, but what's the value proposition? Which I think, I think, um, to a large extent is also why I joined like immediately because I always join immediately because it's EasterCon. He also says we were wondering whether or not they had, um, edited the announcement. Uh, and he says that he knows that it said on the 11th of October that it said what it says now, uh, because he had caused quote from it. And so the text hasn't changed. And I think that speaks to, um, the ease with which it is possible to communicate something in plain English that then you do not communicate in a way that people actually hear properly. And I think a lot of us in the community were hearing EastCon saying they didn't have a lot of virtual plans. And that does seem to run counter to um, the stuff they were like they wrote in this statement, but it definitely wasn't the impression we were getting in the community. And I think um, that might be a topic we can touch upon later for reasons connected to other conventions. A lot of foreshadowing this week. Yes, we're good at it, Liz. Yeah, Mark also gives us some clarification about um, about accounts. It may be that we're the only people who are hung up about um, EasterCon accounts or, or, or convention accounts generally because um, Claire and Mark were the only people who mentioned it and we already know that they're very interested in it and we are very interested in it. That may mean that our audience generally isn't that interested in it. But I still think it's super important stuff. All conventions should publish accounts in due course. And I'm, I'm sure um, um, punctuation will any any minute now. We're actually still getting money in for punctuation, which I don't entirely understand. It's because Stripe keeps like some percentage of your money for two months or something in case... Um, something bad happens and so basically we had i think about two-thirds of the money we had made from memberships available to us at the time we ran the convention and now we are getting uh the rest of the money okay that explains it so so we should probably be able to finalize the accounts in the next month i think realistically but i think the other thing i want to say is this is also one of the reasons why it's not possible to run this sort of event at cost you have to run it above cost and then plan to donate. Oh, we may have to take this offline because I hugely disagree with that statement. And that's that's part of why we have parcel log funds, though, for for long-standing things. We don't have any for punctuation, but we we could perfectly well have run punctuation by running into debt and then having the money follow in later. That is not the reason you can't budget at cost. It, um, I think that, but it is a reason you can't right like if you don't have a credit card yeah but there are for example the league of fan funds will will give you money to cover that sort of thing for as an example of the way that you could cover it there are ways in which you can manage not having all of the funds you need come in fast enough including using a payment service that does give you the money in time to run the event which do exist they just take more of a cut so there are several ways in which you can handle it that aren't just plan to make a profit. Okay. I think this does all tie in to publication of the EasterCon accounts, because we may say we're the only, you know, none of our listeners, apart from Mark and Claire, wrote his letters indicating strong preferences for it. But if I was coming into fandom and I wanted to try running an EasterCon, then one, it would be very important for me to know the financial state of kind of the EasterCon pass along and how we've been doing over the past few years, and to know 
you know what what people have been budgeting for for different areas of the con otherwise it's very hard to uh, to know that and also you say there are organizations like the league of fan funds that will help you you know if you if you need a float to be repaid later because of payment terms but you also need to know that you can go and contact the league of fan funds and they they would be happy to do that which you might not necessarily know well, well, they might or might not be happy to do that. But I think at this point, if somebody asked the League of Fan Funds for a float, we would be going, oh, yeah, that sounds like a plan. Yeah, I'm not I'm not committing into anything, but just organisations which will do stuff like that, you have to know they exist and might be able to help you before you can go to them. So the more public account information, the better. As chair of the 2018 EasterCon, it feels like it's time. I will get in touch with my treasurer and say, um, what is now stopping us from publishing our accounts and see if we can't get that sorted by, say, Easter. That's a public statement. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. Dolly the treasurer did, so uh, <laughs> probably need to also tell the treasurer. <laughs> I know the, the, the treasurer knew that we had an intention to get it done in a year, so, you know. <laughs> I think while I agree with Alison's core point that you can charge your members less money if other organisations give you money, I am not sure that erases my core point of this stuff's difficult. <sighs> <laughs> that sigh was beautiful. John's new ringtone. Yes. I'm being I'm being facetious, obviously. It is certainly... It, I am not prepared to concede the general point that when starting up a convention for the first time you need to have a plan to soak your members there are you know it, that is one way in which you can you can cope with the fact that starting up a convention for the first time is um is is a a risky affair i would say that i think that punctuation made a larger profit as a proportion of membership than any project i've ever been uh, involved on in my life and i'm i'm only very slightly embarrassed about that because it was only a fiver uh yes anyway uh we have digressed and we have i mean shockingly although to be fair we digressed onto an on-topic topic I think it's also important to publish accounts because that way, if you're later going to make arguments that some things you might want to do are too expensive, you've got the evidence right there in, his, in historical accounts to support that argument. Ah, true. Uh, it's more foreshadowing, isn't it? It's more foreshadowing, that's true. Um, so we're on to Claire's letter. Claire writes to say, yes, that is true. Any typos in future messages from me are, of course, deliberate mistakes designed to catch you out. Although I'd always intended that multiple grammatical and punctuation errors would be the way I'd indicate that I was being made to write under duress. So maybe it's not such a good plan. Um, so just to reassure you, then, if there are any mistakes in this email, they're either tests or hilarious jokes and not a sign I'm chained to a radiator. Claire, if you're being held under duress... Please ask your captors to send us your customary video letter of comment. Claire also uh, reiterates what Mark said about um, not being uh, in on the Hugo checking this year and um, also wrote to us about um, the value of publishing EasterCon accounts. She also says that she needs to point out a misspelling of Karen Schaefer's surname because uh, we referred to Karen and her partner Mike in last episode as Karen Ward and Mike Schaefer instead of referring to them as Karen Schaefer and Mike Ward which at least it is clear that we are not instruments of the patriarchy but it is also clear we're daft so thank you very much for pointing that out Claire we we could we could we could avoid this problem by not making any mistakes next time <laughs> 
We're very sorry and we will never make any mistakes ever again. <laughs> On the subject of never making any mistakes ever again, all fandom was plunged into war. What happened was, as far as I can reconstruct this, is Discon 3, who are the 2021 Worldcon, announced a new policy for Hugo finalists, which would be that they would uh, announce all the names as part of the souvenir book and program and on the website, and they would all get pins and ribbons. But when we actually list the final nominees on the ballot and, you know, on the PowerPoint at the Hugo ceremony and on the trophy plaques, uh, they would only list up to four names. And this made quite a lot of people quite annoyed. This is because there are, you know, a large number of nominees for the Hugos, especially in uh, the fanzine and semi-prozine and bandcast categories, where increasingly more than four people have been listed as creators of uh, the works in question. And while I think Discon 3 meant to say more prominently, yes, and we're going to list all these names in the souvenir book and in the program and on the websites, what they actually said was, uh, when the PowerPoint comes up with your name as a nominee, we're only going to list four of you. Um, and when you get invites to the parties and so on, we'll only list four of you. And so this made a lot of the um, larger teams uh, quite annoyed. And and we'll dis- we'll discuss why Discord made these changes and, and whether we agree with them in a minute. But it, it made quite a lot of them quite annoyed, especially ones who pointed out that, you know, they were really very proud of having won the Hugo Award and would not have been listed if this policy was in effect in their years. Um, also pointing out that there are a lot of uh, minority creators who are involved with these these particular categories who would not have been listed uh, on the in the final list if this policy was in place. This policy uh, stayed in place for approximately 24 hours, at which point Discon 3 uh, apologised, listed all the steps they were going to take um, to address the problems that they have caused, and apologised, thank people for uh, speaking out about it. And I think it seemed like that was that, at least for a few days. It did. But maybe before we continue, maybe we should discuss a little bit this policy that Discon had and why we think we had this policy, and whether we think this policy was a good idea or not. Reading the tweets from Discon, I think um, it calls to mind the thing we discussed um, a little while ago in the letters of comment, which is the things that they say and the focus of the ensuing discussion were, um, it was very clear that people were discussing the feeling they got from what Discon had said, rather than the sort of nuts and bolts. And that is to say that like, Discon are very clear in their announcement that all creators named uh, to the convention as part of a Hugo finalist will be listed in the book, the ceremony program, and on the websites, and would receive a pin and a ribbon. They specifically say that they will only list up to four names for each finalist on the paper ballot, on the ceremony visuals, and on the trophy plaque. And they conspicuously do not mention whether every finalist will get a trophy. And I think if they meant that not every finalist would get a trophy, then um, that is something where I can understand why the conversation that ensued really did focus on kind of people who had won trophies in the years they were nominated to who had been excluded by this policy. And I think if they did not mean to indicate that only four people would be allowed to have trophies, then this was an enormous own goal of communication that they should have anticipated. I will say that uh, I have been nominated for Hugo's under the Team Journey Planet banner i've edited three journey planets um two on star wars and one on the matrix i really like editing journey planet and it gives me access to 
a community of writers and editors and a kind of a, a well to tap that I would not be able to access otherwise, especially with um, James Bacon's um, sources in the Irish comic industry and uh, Chris's contacts in kind of California and Hollywood. Um, and I think that in the years when I have been nominated, I have either been eligible to get a rocket or I have been eligible to pay a surcharge for a rocket. Um, so I think it was Dublin, but it might have been San Jose who basically said we're going to make up to five rockets per listed finalist and anyone kind of in excess of that number, like we're quite happy to, to you know, let you pay us to make uh, more rockets if you'd like more than that for your group. Um, and I'm not sure kind of where in that spectrum Discon 3 was. Um, but yeah, I think I think they really did need to... I think make it clearer if this was literally just we can't list 26 people on this very small bit of text they really need to make it clearer that that was the main drive and if that isn't the main drive I think they needed perhaps to say that and to open a dialogue about that that wasn't we have decided this thing but um, perhaps other people on the podcast disagree with me I think I do disagree somewhat um so back in the mists of time there was only one rocket, and I think what's one of the things that's happening here is that we've got we, people are talking as if fans have just invented the idea of large team efforts and collaborations, and it's just not true. Um, we give Hugos for movies, which obviously have many thousands of people working on them because that's what it takes, but even a, a novel, it's well understood, I think, that when you give an author a best novel Hugo that's a huge collaboration that involves a lot of work from a lot of people not least of which is their editor we've actually talked in the past about surfacing who's editing who's editing the things that are winning awards but you know it could also involve a translator it certainly involves artists and publishers and copy editors and all manner of things and the notion that just because you have somebody's name on something, it, ca it doesn't mean it's a joint effort or that, that somehow diminishes the joint effort. I don't, I just feel like we're kind of going, oh, well, it's, if you've got a team of, and, and if you have a team of 40 people, we should be celebrating all 40 of those equally. That, that's not the way it works. I mean, the, the, so originally they gave out a rocket and that might have been an individual thing or it might have been a it certainly involved more than one person i don't think there's anything maybe maybe some fanzines are in fact the entire work of one person but almost everything on there is going to be more than that and um later they had some things that were jointly written and they they started dishing out two i feel slightly guilty in this because i think Plockter may have been the first time they they gave out three but at the point where Plockter won the hugo we were actually an editor a, a, a collaboration of nine people and i do think but it was clear that the people who drove the existence of the fanzine and had generated all of all of the work that we done there although we had a lot of people working for it it was primarily the three editors and that uh, and we are the ones who went up on stage and, and got the rocket that doesn't in any way diminish the contribution that the other people involved made to the fancy, which was very large. And I I feel like I don't really believe in this is a large team of um, a vast number of people, all of whom have equal weight. I think that there are normally one or two or or maybe three people who drive a project. And um, 
we should be able to we, we should be able to actually not have a thing where we go oh well we're going to read out a list of 45 names for this nominee because they've decided that they're all of equal weight so I'm I'm kind of I feel that they should have done a much better job of because obviously announcing the policy by fiat and not giving the community a chance to talk about what whether we actually have a collective understanding of what it should be um, was not a very good way to go about it. But I think they do have a point, and I, I I would like to see I would like to see that point discussed substantively, which it may never be now. So I would say I can I can see that you might need to draw a line somewhere. I think if you have I think if you had fifty names then that is a lot to read out and a lot to have on the screen and a lot of people to potentially be rewarded. Um, but I think the kind of way of saying, well, you'll all be listed in the book, but then when it gets to the ceremony and the ballot, there'll only be four of you, is setting it way too low. And so one of my one of my thoughts about this is I actually went back and looked at previous years to see how many people were listed. And I know this is imperfect because we know we know informally that there's been um, a limit on this in the past. And, and Chris Garcia has talked about this for Journey Planet. There are more teams being listed uh, who would cross that four-person barrier, but it's actually not entirely, I thought it would almost entirely be in sort of semi-prozine and maybe fanzine. Um, But actually it catches some other categories as well because it catches the podcasts that were in best related work when it was writing excuses, but it also catches some sort of things like comics, which have five listed creators. And if you have the writer of a comic, a penciling team, an inker and a colorist, and that adds up to five people, which one do you knock off to get you down to four? And, and similarly with things like, we say we don't list everyone for TV and movies, but actually we tend to list all the writers and the directors. And so, for instance, when they listed Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that has officially three writers and two directors. So, you know, you end up catching things that I'm not sure they're intending to catch by setting off at four. I would be quite happy for them to say, actually, we're going to set your cutoff at 12 or you're going to set the cutoff at 20 and see how we go. I don't really see the problem in listing people's names. And we can see that, you know, if even if you are in name a finalist and you're sat in the audience, but then the, the big sort of PowerPoint screen comes up and it only lists four people from your project and not you, and then your project wins and you can't go up and like take part in that and, and celebrate that, then it just seems sort of a change where I can kind of see the arguments behind making it, but I'm not sure it, it really gains them more than they are losing. I think something that I would say, which is Alison mentioned, um, you know, movies have like large number of people and like um, books kind of have more than um, more than just the author contributing. And I think that's true. And I think, but I think that the key here is to recognize the people who have the editorial or maybe not maybe editorial is the wrong word, but people who have the creative control and i think the problem is that like in a movie it's very clear that like the director and maybe like if it, if a producer is very um uh, very active then they have the cre- the creative control over that project and like in a book i i think i would edit i think i would argue that it is the editor and the author that have creative control and 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 people who've listened to the podcast in the past will know that i i have been kind of wondering for a while now why editors aren't recognized when fiction is um uh, award, awarded Hugo's, um, but I think for for projects like, um, for instance, uh, Uncanny Magazine, or for projects like 
like Journey Planet, I think that one of the things that we are seeing is that these projects are resulting in larger teams of people who have overall creative control. So like in the case of Journey Planet, like Chris and James kind of contact guest editors who they want to do the work, but it is project that is made by many different editors and i think without those editors exercising their creative control the project would be very different and so i think even if you peg it as you know reward the people who did have that control and who helped shape the creative output of the nominated work that number is getting bigger and that might it might not be that that's because of kind of technological advances it might just be that like people are getting more inclusive in the community and this is a way to bring marginalized people in and to to uplift them if if you're a kind of white creator who has a platform you can bring marginalized people and kind of give them creative control and in doing that you're uplifting marginalized groups in a way that's really positive um and so maybe that's why it's happening but i do think that you can see that it is happening and i, and I think ultimately like you know i'm not saying that all of the people who do any work on a movie like that you see at the end of the credits should should win a hugo if if um the movie wins like because that would clearly be silly but i think that it is different to then say well i i look at the list of six people on the uncanny magazine profile uh who who usually win rockets and it's the editors-in-chief it's the managing editor the non-fiction editor and the two people who produce the podcast and it's like that seems fine and arbitrarily saying well the podcast doesn't deserve recognition or or the non-fiction editing doesn't deserve recognition like i i find it i i find it unconvincing that any of those six people do not have some level of meaningful creative control over that project that is part of the reason why it wins the award i i think it would be interesting to have a discussion about the policy in the community and not merely about the flounce but i feel like we should go on to talk about the fallout which is perhaps more interesting because even if this is was a good policy which i think we've said four four seems like a rather arbitrary number announcing things by um by just kind of announcing them as as a done deal seems slightly odd especially when it's anything to do with the hugos but also it it seems to be clear from what we do know about the fallout that that the policy was implemented by the board over the objections of the Wusfus division and that does seem to be a very strange way to have gone about it so having essentially announced a policy which went down very badly and have basically apologized and reversed course within 24 hours everything was calm for a few days then there was an announcement on the discon 3 twitter that their co-chair colette fozard would be resigning and she then posted a statement on file 770 about her resignation which um essentially says that the the feedback they got about this policy was the last straw in a number of um last straws of how she feels the volunteers and the people who work on worldcon have been treated over the years and so she decided this it was a good time for her to resign um post on file 770 about how the internet had been mean over and over to Worldcon staff and and then to uh, do a sort of mic drop and leave. Um, and obviously Mike was very unhappy. This is what is known traditionally in fandom as a flounce. I, I like Colette a lot and I was very 
glad to get to know her as part of because she was working on Discon 3 and she was supporting the, the bid when it was a bid and, and she seems like a really, really nice person who is fun to hang out with. Um, she mentioned a number of examples in her in her letter of ways in which she'd been mistreated and quite a lot of people who were not necessarily of the belligerent kind, but, you know, other thoughtful, experienced con runners came back and said, we don't necessarily think these are good examples of of mistreatment that that yes decisions were criticized in those cases but they and and sometimes they were criticized robustly but that they weren't done in a way that was aggressive or or personal this this doesn't entirely add up and i think that seems right to me and i think it's possible because if you're chairing a convention or a big convention people do criticize things about that convention for all sorts of reasons and some of them are valid criticisms and some of them are mixed and some of them are are, are not that valid but as the chair you you it's very easy to start thinking of the convention as if it was your your baby or or in an analogy that will make sense to more people who listen to the podcast your cat and (laughs) and so you you can become very defensive about criticism and 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 start to feel that all robust criticism is abuse and, and that's not true um now i don't i don't i haven't gone back through all of the details and people do i think when people are criticizing they they probably need to be less intemperate than they often are there's a that all the stuff you learn in in management training about delivering feedback with wrapped in wrapped in good and secure thoughts about how wonderful the person or the organization you're giving feedback to is but there's this this one little thing that they might like to change this probably applies to conventions as well and i think people don't necessarily do that when they're tweeting out so so it does upset people but i i feel like coletta's overreacted well, she may not have overreacted by resigning because I don't know what was personally going on. But I think in making that statement, it's it it seems to be to be a a rather poorly thought through statement that has expo- exposes rather more of her personal reaction to criticism than it maybe should have done. So that that too. So I have I have thoughts about this, which is that um, I think it is silly. I think emotions are silly. No, uh, that's not what I want to say. Bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop. <laughs> we're science fiction. We're, we're science fiction fans. We don't do emotions, didn't you know? Yes, that right. Okay, and so yes, good. Now, good. See, I think there is a perception that I think I think there is a real undercurrent in a lot of these conversations. And I think this is not just science fiction fandom, but I think in a lot of discussions like this, it is is kind of um, maybe not unacceptable, but like it is not considered the done thing to say stuff like I hear your counter argument and I see that you have a point, but the way you are expressing that point makes my feelings hurt. And I would quite like you to go away for a little bit so that I am no longer hurt. And I think something I have been trying in my personal life to do more recently is when I get into discussions that are hurting my feelings, even if I'm sure that everyone involved isn't intending to do that, I sort of say, well, no, I mean, and I, I sort of say like, well, this is the way we're having this conversation kind of means that I feel 
hurt or defensive or or I'm in a bad kind of place emotionally and I'm sure you're not trying to do that but maybe we should both take a step back and think well this discussion is a little bit hotter or a little bit more charged than it needs to be and maybe there's a way we can have this discussion without kind of without having it in a way that could result in hurt feelings and I think that is a very difficult thing to do because I think it opens you up um, it, it makes you vulnerable to the person you're talking with. And it is something that is I, I, I find it very difficult to do with people I've known for, for decades. So doing it with people I don't know who are on Twitter, I expect is impossible. And and the rest of Twitter is not going to help you with with that. Well, and, and so the, I think the thing with Twitter is Twitter is a fantastic tool and Twitter really rewards um brevity it like the, the the kind of the nature of the website is that you are rewarded by being able to encapsulate your thoughts very tersely and i think that can be really valuable but i do think it does mean that people tend to be very direct on twitter and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but i do think if you're very direct with criticism it can be easy not to couch that criticism in a way that kind of recognizes the fact that Criticism can be hurtful, even if even if that criticism is 100% valid. And, even, and I agree with the criticism. I, I am, as you probably gathered, listeners from the previous segment of this podcast, I, in general, oppose DC's uh, decision here. And I was generally on the side of the people who were complaining. Uh, and I read Colette's statement, and I do sort of think, you know, clearly, I think she is personally invested in a convention she was running, which I think I understand, and I don't think that's unreasonable at all. And and I think clearly she has been hurt, and I can see why. And I think, and I'm not saying that that's unreasonable. I'm also not saying the people who criticised were being unreasonable. What I do think at a fundamental level is this is why the chair should not be the person who is reading this. The chair should not be the person who is responding to this. The chair should be displaced from this criticism by people whose job it is to encapsulate the criticism report it to the chair in a way that is not quite as direct or terse as it is on twitter and then maybe the chair says well here is what i think and, and the people on the social media kind of layer say aha the chair respectfully disagrees and here is our response and i think a very good example of this is elon musk who on no account should be allowed to have his own twitter account because the fact that he goes on flame wars against people all the time is like no get a media manager I just want to say I completely disagree with that um, for in, in big and small ways. <laughs> um, so, Liz. So I would say one of the biggest things I have actually learned from working on Worldcons is how to take criticism much less personally, because I think that is the only way to work on a Worldcon. You have to, you know, take pride in your successes and pride in things that go right, but you cannot take everyone saying, hey, you've done this in a way that is bad or, you know, you haven't thought about um, the way, the effect this has on particular communities. You have to not take that as a personal thing. It's not personally against you. It's saying, you know, this thing you have done in your role on this convention is not working for us. So I think that was one of the, the, the biggest things I have learned from having fairly public facing roles to Worldcons. And I think the second thing that goes along with that is Alison's way of saying, well, you've got to do it in management speak and maybe you can couch your criticism, um, you know, with some positive things is I don't think Worldcon is in a position where people want to give us the benefit of the doubt to do that. And it's probably a longer discussion of how this announcement from Discon has to be put in the perspective and the context of all the other announcements from Worldcon. But last year's Hugo's, the Hugo ceremony 
went very badly in prominent ways. So they're not people who we can say, look, this is our first misstep. Please give us the benefit of the doubt on this one and we'll discuss it more. These are people saying, look, last year you made a total cock up of it and we did not feel honoured as finalists. And this year you're proposing to do this other thing, which makes us feel not honoured as finalists. So I can kind of understand why they got a bit angry. And my third thing I will say in this round is that if you think that like the the speed and immediacy of Twitter criticism um, is a problem for um, discussion and debate, then definitely I think the speed with which you can resign, write a long post about your resignation and post it on file 770 is another example of where the speed of the internet is really not helping. Because I think this post should have, as, as someone else said on Facebook, gone in a drawer for a week and then you think about it again. And that, that's what I was trying to say with the with the layer between the chair and the criticism, because I think that does cut both ways. I think you're completely wrong about um, insulating power from criticism. Um, I think the fact that this happens is what leads to people being very bad at at being chairs. The job of the chair over beyond anything else is to keep an overview this is going to be awful management speak again but you're wanting to keep an overview of everything that is going on at a high level but also be sufficiently aware of what is going on at detail levels that you can make sure that policy decisions do reflect the entire community do reflect build a consensus do all of those things i mean i think obviously elon musk should have a media manager I, you know, that goes without saying, but the chair, but your chair does need to be aware of the criticism. However, as Liz said, I mean, I think if you've worked, I don't know, Liz worked with me on, on Follycon and then we did have, um, uh, punctuation was a flat collective, but in general, if I'm kind of doing things in difficult circumstances as chair, I'll write what I want to say and then I'll whiz it to people that I trust to say, is this setting the right tone? Is this taking us in a in a supportive direction? Because I know that I am somebody who is inclined to shoot from the hip. <laughs> no. <laughs> One of the roles that chairs often take at conventions is being the final arbiter of the code of conduct and whenever i run a convention i take i take myself out of the code of conduct management line because i know this is something that i'm not very good at because i am not measured enough to do that job well and also because i know that i have people who i can go to and say will you do this for me and they will do it very well so um and i feel like i feel like that's Kind of, if you're the chair, you have to be prepared to take all the criticism um, and, and deal with it in a, in a way that is productive. I don't, I don't think you could say, I have a media manager to manage all of that. I never look at Twitter. So I think, I think um, you're right. And I think, um, yes, I didn't necessarily mean to imply that the chair should be insulated from, from the criticism. I, I guess what I more meant was, I think I, think I can see that there are modes of criticism that might be hurtful and like i think i have two reactions to that which is firstly yes i agree that the chair needs to be aware of all the criticism and i think ultimately the chair's job in some ways is to be the person who is criticized like ultimately the convention's actions are um at the final kind of uh, in the final case um the responsibility of the chair and if something goes badly it is on the chair 
I will say that the thing I was intending to say with that kind of um, insulating layer was not necessarily that the chair should be insulated from criticism um, in terms of like, you should never see any. But I think like this kind of thing where you've got kind of Colette uh, writing a statement in file 70, 70, which is quite incendiary. That's the sort of thing that I think having some sort of insulating layer would, would, would prevent. And the thing that you mentioned, Alison, of kind of making sure that you, because it sounds like you're describing an insulating layer, but you're um, kind of bouncing messages off people to make sure that there is some level of kind of double glazing in between the thing you want to say in your head and the thing that people see you say publicly. Resignation letters are a classic a classic form of saying something in century. That's okay. What I'm I'm not suggesting that Colette should not have said something in century. That's her personal choice. I'm saying that if she had been a bit more reflective, she could have said something much more potent and and not necessarily it's basically people could look at what she said and go she should not have said that whereas she could have definitely said that in a way that people went oh you know she's got a point we need we need to address things in both ways i i think i think i think in general i am suggesting that um the thing that got published in fast episode was not necessarily constructive I, I want to say one tiny thing before giving Liz her turn, um, which is a very wise manager once said to me that you should never write an e- a sentence in an email or in, in, or in any published document where you, could, where you could append the words you idiot to the end of the sentence without changing its meaning. And, and, and Colette finishes her, her statement with keep, you'll have to bleep this, keep around and we'll find out which i think is 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 a giant example of of that exact point so the other thing that we like to draw attention to is um a long comment posted uh on um fozard's post on file 770 which is from jared dashoff who was the wispus division head for discon 3 and has now resigned um and it's essentially a comment that says that um the, the the policies that were put forward for the Hugo Award were not uh, his idea or of his Hugo admins, but they did roll through and help to um, plan how to implement them and how to roll them out. Um, and then they saw the response. They hadn't uh, realised how much displeasure there would be. And he and uh, his Hugo administrator uh, argued they should reverse course and that um, which as we know, they eventually did, but apparently there was a meeting where uh, Jared Hugo admin was asked to resign. Um, And as a result of this, he says that he has resigned. Um, It's not clear who else has resigned, but there may be other resignations from his division. But essentially, it's kind of disagreeing with Colette's point and saying, essentially, this was, you know, a, a policy that was not imposing them, but was not their idea. And they came up with how to implement it and roll it out, which is what sometimes is going to happen. But then it seemed like the Hugo admin was the person who was going to have to take the fallout for this policy, which I would disagree with entirely. And it sounds like he disagreed with it to the point where he felt he had to resign. So I feel that also puts a very different slant on um, Colette's post. And I think the messages I would take from this is that 
like all conventions, there is some uh, some internal disagreement. There is internal debate on things. Sometimes you will have to implement a policy which may not be what you would do ideally in a vacuum, but it may be kind of imposed on you because of the constraints of other divisions or because this is what the chair and the rest of the committee wants to happen or maybe just the chairs. But I do think that what this shows is a policy that was rolled out from the top downwards when, like when it was received much more disfavorably than they thought. And the the, the book didn't roll back upwards to the top, but it rolled back upwards to kind of the Hugo admin, which really does not seem at the right level to say, okay, this is the person who needs to take the fallout for it. And and what it looks like this has led to is probably maybe the loss of the the Hugo admin, but the loss of the Wispers division head and quite possibly there may be other members um, of the division, I suspect, who are also not happy. I I think I have seen we have seen resignation statements from other people within the Wusfus division of Discon. So I mean I don't know how many how much of the Wusfus division will remain when the dust settles. I think um, I think and, and no and I think like um, whatever else I think about uh, the policy and whatever else I think about the way um, Discon communicated the policy and whatever else I think about the way Discon climbed down off the policy and whatever else I think about Colette's post resigning I think this message from Jared makes it abundantly clear that at some level this was not a good set of decisions made by the Discon chair um under duress from criticism from the community board i'm assuming that the decision on the policy was taken by the board but the chair signs off as i said it is on the chair (sighs) yeah and especially if the chair is going to kick off this giant argument it is definitely on the chair because she would have known that this was not the idea of anyone else in her organization it sounds very much like she attempted to shift the blame onto someone else um to avoid taking the responsibility for this decision and ultimately if she'd come out and said i instituted this policy um the was division implemented it um but it was it was me and the board that kind of decided it needed to be implemented we sincerely apologize and we will kind of work on this going forward i would not i would not want her to resign Colette threw a very large amount of shade in multiple directions in her statement, and I'd say that Jared's response is clear and measured and not excessive. But they are doing that un-British thing of airing one's dirty laundry in public. Jared's response is, is, um, is, I think, a very good response. I think it clearly goes into, like, this is what actually happened, and I reading it like obviously i don't know for sure i wasn't there but it, it doesn't seem like it would be an unlikely set of um, um events and he does note that like part of the reason he resigns is because he wasn't having fun anymore he didn't feel supported by the organization i think Fazard saying like oh this is because people are overly critical and the way we like criticize our convention running is unacceptable is all very well then when you find out that her own division heads think that she has kind of sold them down the river for magic beans um, and is a large part of why this has been so spectacularly mishandled, it's then very difficult to say, well, okay, she has a good point about how we have this discourse. I think it undermines her point that if she had handled it better as chair, then resigned and then been upset with their criticism, I'd be like, oh, you know, maybe we should have a discussion about this. I'm not sure if we have time to do it today, but I 
I did a job for a World Con. I did a large job for the 2014 World Con, and I concluded at the end of that that I did not want to do that again. And one of the problems that we have with World Cons is that, for whatever reason, we often find ourselves with the very large conventions, the very big jobs being done by people who may not be either they're either not very well suited to doing those jobs or they don't have sufficient a sufficient support network around them to keep them doing them properly worldcon is very difficult and and when they say friends don't let friends run worldcons this is why um but also um that thing about uh, back at the beginning, one of the things we did, points we did not make at the beginning that we maybe should have done is the other question that comes to mind about this policy around the Hugos is shouldn't this be a matter for Wusfus and the Wusfus business meeting? It is relatively clear to me that the Hugo um, the Hugo teams at previous Worldcons have been trying to keep some sort of a lid on the number of people who are on the ballot um, for each finalist. And it is relatively clear to me that there has been some pushback from the actual finalists. But that has all been happening in private email chains. And what we're currently seeing is kind of like an explosion of stuff coming out um, now that this argument is being had in a public sphere. And I think that maybe it would be better to sort of have some kind of panel items at Worldcons and, and maybe some consultations and maybe some WUSFA subcommittees and all of these things that do a very good job of go away and think about things and collect information and weigh up the pros and cons and then come back with a sort of coherent thing which says, here's what people think. You know, a policy document, for instance. The week before last, we discussed the video game, Hugo, and there is this beautiful document. That beautiful is not necessarily the word I would use to describe this document. Elegant, magnificent, marvellous. Comprehensive is what I would say. Comprehensive. Comprehensive is a good word. Thorough. Thorough is good. Yeah, but what I think it does do a good job is taking the potential arguments against the case and putting forward the arguments against the arguments against. So so kind of saying, here's why we think this would work, here are some common arguments, and here are why we think they're not a problem. And I think, although I'm not saying that document is like my favourite argument, um, I, I do think that kind of approach to this kind of issue would probably be better than just sort of arguing in the file 770 comments and on Twitter. And Alison um, did say, like, do you think fandom, do you think we would have a measured and nuanced debate about this? And I concede that it is possible that people would still find things to be annoyed and angry and shouty about. But I, I just, I, yeah, I think it might be better. And also, for the avoidance of doubt, I would rather hear the complete list of every name of somebody who worked on a large semi-prosine project than I would any more anecdotes by Robert Silverberg. <laughs> I, I think actually you raise a very valid point that um it's kind of related to the point i had said before about context which is when people were pushing back against this policy on twitter it wasn't in a vacuum these probably are the people who work on semi-prozine who have been having this back and forward with the committees trying to work out exactly who gets listed and who gets left out every year um, and that's what you might not be able to see. So you just see them making a tweet against it, but you don't know that they have spent several years like pushing back against this. And now they're just having this kind of imposed on them um, 
from higher up. So I think that's a, a useful point to make. And uh, uh, yes, I wholeheartedly agree with Alison. Um, we don't need to mention that because that's obvious. Um, <clears throat> I do worry that uh, Whisper subcommittees are where things go to die. But I do think some guidelines on um, what is expected from this. Like, for instance, I don't know if the Hugo base design guidelines specify like the size of the plaque that needs to be on the base but if we are having problems fitting all the names on the base then either we need to have a larger plaque on the base or we need to say to the nominees the base is this big if we can't fit all your names on it how would you like us to label your hugos yeah i mean i I think somebody said you completely remove the emotional content of this by saying the plaque has room for x characters um, it doesn't. This doesn't necessarily work for Twitter, mind. I can fit a lot in a tweet. If I could fit a tweet on a Hugo plaque, it would be pretty awesome. So, would you be able to have Hugo plaque threads? Where like you've got to win more than one year in a row, John, in order to properly thread. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep reading every time. Uh, but you can actually see a world in which you could print the whole of Ansible onto its Hugo plaque. <laughs> Excellent. I am in favour. Um, so, uh, but no, I think, I think we have, um, I think we have discussed this, um, and, uh, and yes, does anyone else have anything they'd like to add? I, I do think adding some frivolous bits at the end is probably not a bad idea because this is quite a weighty, it's quite weighty for us. Before we go, we're going to tell you about some upcoming events. So... FANAC, which stands for the Florida Association for Nucleation and Conventions, are hosting a interview. Um, so John D. Berry, who gave a fantastic talk on punctuation at punctuation, is interviewing Ted White, who is a fan um, who apparently needs interviewing. Yeah, he's fandom's equivalent of Robert Silverberg. um they're hosting this at the uh at 4 p.m eastern standard time uh on the 23rd of january 2021 it is a follow-up to rob hansen's excellent tour of fanish london which alison and i attended a few weeks ago and was magnificent um so if people are interested in that um go to fanac.org and poke around um roman orzanski who is a um a locker of the podcast and a noted Adelaidean fan um, is involved with hosting a one-day mini convention called Critical Mass. Um, it is running noon to 8pm Adelaide time, um, and that is on the 31st of January um, 2021. Um, the last panel of the day is um, about podcasting. It's being um, run at 7.30pm Adelaide time, which is 9am uh british time and i will be appearing uh, on that uh, panel about podcasting um so uh yes uh, do if you don't get enough of listening to me on podcasts uh feel free to come along to that and listen to me on a panel about podcasts and then um we're currently missing aresia and i think um capricorn is coming up on the 4th to the 7th of february and boscone is coming up on the 12th to the 14th of february so liz and allison are you going to any of these events I think I am going to Boscone. There will be a fan funds auction at Boscone. Um, we haven't entirely worked out the format and plans for that, but it's going to happen. Um, I was also going to trade, but I think I might have missed the deadline um, because it might have been Friday. But um, I, I'm not. I might get to Capricorn as well. Tammy Coxon, who I like very much, is. Um, 
running is the chair of Capricorn, and she was encouraging me to go. And it's these are these are not very expensive. Um, I, I think Boscone is twenty five dollars, um, and I think Capricorn's ten dollars. So they're not free um, events. I'm sure Critical Mass will be free or very cheap though, and and Fanac is free. Yes. So yes, I'm definitely going to. I'll definitely get to one or both of those conventions. I just haven't got my act together to work out how and where yet. But I do struggle slightly with um, American conventions because they start partying just at the point where I am thinking of going to sleep, and I am quite a late stayer upper. Um, uh, the advantage of critical mass is if they do have an after party, then it will start at. 10 o'clock in the morning it sounds like which is exactly the sort of time when i think about partying so that's fine that was the 23rd episode of the octothorpe podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me There are a lot of people whose only interest in and engagement with the Worldcon is the Hugo Awards. And they are coming along and saying, we care about the Hugos. We think the Hugos Awards are critically important. And so therefore, everything else you do... And, and, and this is evidenced by the fact that Hugos, that Wusfus, is an entire division in the Worldcon organisation, which, if you think about the way that organisations are set up, is quite strange. It it's it's a very it's it's because it is an, an enormous amount of work but and and that's not even the half of it because the actual hugo award ceremony and the retro hugo award ceremony are, are the two biggest parts of the events job which is another division of the worldcon and so that's why i have put in the show notes um maybe the hugos just are a cankerous boil that should be excised from Worldcons forthwith so we could just have a nice convention. So my response to Alison would be, well, maybe the Worldcon is just a cankerous boil uh, on the bottom of the Hugos <laughs> and we may need an entire other podcast, I think, to do this justice. To say say maybe should we just split these things into two entirely different things? So you could have the, the Hugo Awards along with the Hugo Awards weekend, like the Nebula Awards weekend, and that could be a, prof a largely professional industry body plus all the semi-prosies that are full of aspiring authors. And we could call the Hugo Awards weekend because it would involve lots of people convening from all about the world. And, and we could call that weekend con of the world world con world con i got it hang on hang on i pause to say alison i think this is a long topic that should like have its own podcast and then you proceeded to start that podcast <laughs> <laughs> i mean i in my defense i just took the piss which is fine we are we are that kind of podcast but no i seriously think that we if, if we are to do this justice and consider all the pros and cons of whether we should do this that we probably do need more than the time we have remaining unless our uh, you know, dear listeners, wish to spend two hours listening to us, which are on about a single topic. No, that's week. fine. Let's um, let's push that away for a future for a future thing. Dear listeners, when Alison and Liz have their big discussion about um, uh, 
splitting up the world color of the Hugos. Um, please just imagine that I'm there just shaking my head the whole time. Uh, and that, that will be, <laughs> that will be enough input for me. You'd probably. almost think he was a mark protector. <laughs> uh, in practice, we cannot, we cannot split off the, um, the Hugos. Alison, he's <laughs> doing the podcast. Unless we really don't think there's enough for us to discuss this on a separate thing, but I think there, there probably is. And so, in which oh, case. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. We've recorded, we've recorded enough podcasts. <laughs> Sorry, just, just in case that wasn't clear, we've definitely <laughs> recorded enough podcasts. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.